Chapter Seven, Part Two of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Doctor Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Seven, Part Two: Marenga, Macaulay, Ugogo, and Uyanza to Unyanyembe. Between Kitadimo and Yambwa, the district of the Sultan Pembera Pera, was a broad and lengthy forest and jungle inhabited by the elephant, rhinoceros, zebra, deer, antelope, and giraffe. Starting at dawn of the 31st, we entered the jungle, whose dark lines and bosky banks were clearly visible from our bower at Kitadimo, and travelling for two hours, halted for rest and breakfast, at pools of sweet water surrounded by tracts of vivid green verdure, which were a great resort for the wild animals of the jungle, whose tracks were numerous and recent. A narrow nullah, shaded deeply with foliage, afforded excellent retreats from the glaring sunshine. At meridian, our thirsts quenched, our hunger satisfied, our gourds refilled, we set out from the shade into the heated blaze of hot noon. The path serpentined in and out of jungle and thin forest into open tracts of grass bleached white as stubble, into thickets of gums and thorns, which emitted an odor as rank as a stable, through clumps of wide-spreading mimosa and colonies of boabab, through a country teeming with noble game, which, though we saw them frequently, were yet as safe from our rifles as if we had been on the Indian Ocean. A terrakeza, such as we are now making, admits of no delay. Water we had left behind at noon, until noon of the next day not a drop was to be obtained, and unless we marched fast and long on this day, raging thirst would demoralize everybody. So for six long, weary hours we toiled bravely, and at sunset we camped, and still a march of two hours, to be done before the sun was an hour high, intervened between us and our camp at Niambwa. That night the men bivouacked under the trees, surrounded by many miles of dense forest, enjoying the cool night unprotected by hat or tent, while I groaned and tossed throughout the night in a paroxysm of fever. The morn came, and while it was yet young, the long caravan, or string of caravans, was under way. It was the same forest, admitting on the narrow line which we threaded, but one man at a time. Its view was as limited. To our right and left the forest was dark and deep. Above was a riband of glassy sky, flecked by the floating nimbus. We heard nothing, save a few stray notes from a flying bird, or the din of caravans as the men sang, or hummed, or conversed, or shouted, as the thought struck them that we were nearing water. One of Mapagazis, wearied and sick, fell and never rose again. The last of the caravan passed him before he died. At seven a.m. we were encamped at Nyamba, drinking the excellent water found here with the avidity of thirsty camels. Extensive fields of grain had heralded the neighborhood of the villages, at the sight of which we were conscious that the caravan was quickening its pace, as approaching its halting place. As the Wasungu drew within the populated area, crowds of Wagogo used their utmost haste to see them before they passed by. Young and old of both genders pressed about us in a multitude, a very howling mob. This excessive demonstrativeness elicited from my sailor overseer the characteristic remark, Well, I declare, these must be the genuine Ugogians, for they stare, stare, there is no end to their staring. I'm almost tempted to slap them in the face, 
In fact, the conduct of the Wagogo of Nyambwa was an exaggeration of the general conduct of Wagogo. Hitherto, those we had met had contented themselves with staring and shouting, but these outstepped all bounds, and my growing anger at their excessive insolence vented itself in gripping the rowdiest of them by the neck, and before he could recover from his astonishment administering a sound thrashing with my dog-whip, which he little relished. This proceeding educed from the tribe of starers all their native power of vitrepation and abuse, in expressing which they were peculiar. Approaching in manner to angry tomcats, they jerked their words with something of a splitting hiss and half-bark. The ejaculation, as near as I can spell it phonetically, was hacht, uttered in a shrill crescendo tone. They paced backwards and forwards, asking themselves, Are the Wagogo to be beaten like slaves by this Masungu? A Mugogo is a Moana, a free man. He is not used to be beaten. Hacked. But whenever I made motion, flourishing my whip, towards them, these mighty braggarts found it convenient to move to respectable distances from the irritated Masungu. Perceiving that a little manliness and show of power was something which the Wagogo long needed, and that in this instance it relieved me from annoyance, I had recourse to my whip, whose long lash cracked like a pistol-shot whenever they overstepped moderation. So long as they continued to confine their obtrusiveness to staring, and communicating to each other their opinions respecting my complexion and dress and accoutrement, I philosophically resigned myself in silence for their amusement. But when they pressed on me, barely allowing me to proceed, a few vigorous and rapid slashes right and left with my serviceable thong soon cleared the track. Pembera Pera is a queer old man, very small, and would be very insignificant were he not the greatest sultan in Ugogo and enjoying a sort of demediated power over many other tribes. Though such an important chief, he is the meanest dressed of his subjects, is always filthy, ever greasy, eternally foul about the mouth, but these are mere eccentricities. As a wise judge he is without parallel, always has a dodge ever ready for the abstraction of cloth from the spiritless Arab merchants, who trade with Unyanyembe every year, and disposes with ease of a judicial case which would overtask ordinary men. Sheikh Hamad, who was elected guider of the United Caravans, now travelling through Ugogo, was of such a fragile and small make that he might be taken for an imitation of his famous prototype, Dapper. Being of such dimensions, what he lacked for weight and size he made up by activity. No sooner had he arrived in camp than his trim, dapper form was seen frisking about from side to side of the great boma, fidgeting, arranging, disturbing everything and everybody. He permitted no bales or packs to be intermingled, or to come into too close proximity to his own. He had a favorite mode of stacking his goods, which he would see carried out. He had a special eye for the best place for his tent, and no one else must trespass on that ground. One would imagine that walking ten or fifteen miles a day he would leave such trivialities to his servants, but no, nothing could be right unless he had personally superintended it, in which work he was tireless and knew no fatigue. Another not uncommon peculiarity pertained to Sheikh Hamad. As he was not a rich man, he labored hard to make the most of every shukka and doti expended, and each fresh expenditure seemed to gnaw his very vitals. He was ready to weep, as he himself expressed it, at the high prices of Ugogo, and the extortionate demands of its sultans. For this reason, being the leader of the caravans, so far as he was able, we were very sure not to be delayed in Ugogo, where food was so dear. The day we arrived at Nyamba will be remembered by Hamad as long as he lives, 
for the trouble and vexation which he suffered. His misfortunes arose from the fact that, being too busily engaged in fidgeting about the camp, he permitted his donkeys to stray into the Matama fields of Perambarapara, the sultan. For hours he and his servants sought for the stray donkeys, returning towards evening utterly unsuccessful, Hamad bewailing, as only an Oriental can do, when hard fate visits him with its inflictions, the loss of a hundred dollars' worth of musket donkeys. Sheikh Thani, older, more experienced, and wiser, suggested to him that he should notify the sultan of his loss. Acting upon the sagacious advice, Hamad sent an embassy of two slaves, and the information they brought back was— that Pembera Pera's servants had found the two donkeys eating the unripened matama, and that unless the Arab who owned them would pay nine doti of first-class cloths, he, Pembera Pera, would surely keep them, to remunerate him for the matama they had eaten. Hamad was in despair. Nine doti of first-class cloths, worth twenty-five dollars in Unyanyembe, for half a chukka's worth of grain, was, as he thought, an absurd demand, but then if he did not pay it, what would become of the hundred dollars' worth of donkeys? He proceeded to the sultan to show him the absurdity of the damage claim, and to endeavor to make him accept one chukka, which would be more than double the worth of what grain the donkeys had consumed. But the sultan was sitting on Pombe, he was drunk, which I believe to be his normal state, too drunk to attend to business, consequently his deputy, a renegade Munyamwenze, gave ear to the business. With most of the Wagogo chief lives Amenyamwezi, as their right-hand man, prime minister, counsellor, executioner, ready man at all things save the general good, a sort of harlequin Unyamwenzi, who is such an intriguing, restless, unsatisfied person, that as soon as one hears that this kind of man forms one of and the chief of a Magogo sultan's council, one feels very much tempted to do damage to his person. Most of the extortions practised upon the Arabs are suggested by these crafty renegades. Sheikh Hamad found that the Munyamweze was far more obdurate than the Sultan. Nothing under nine doti first-class cloths would redeem the donkeys. The business that day remained unsettled, and the night following was, as one may imagine, a very sleepless one to Hamad. As it turned out, however, the loss of the donkeys, the after-heavy fine, and the sleepless night proved to be blessings in disguise— for towards midnight a robber Magogo visited his camp, and while attempting to steal a bale of cloth, was detected in the act by the wide-awake and irritated Arab, and was made to vanish instantly with a bullet whistling in close proximity to his ear. From each of the principals of the caravans the Munyamwezi had received as tribute for his drunken master fifteen doti, and from the other six caravans six doti each, altogether fifty-one doti. Yet on the next morning, when we took the road, he was not in a whit disposed to deduct a single cloth from the fine imposed on Hamad, and the unfortunate sheikh was therefore obliged to liquidate the claim, or leave his donkeys behind. After travelling through the cornfields of Pembera Pera, we emerged upon a broad, flat plain, as level as the still surface of a pond, whence the salt of the Wagogo is obtained. From Kenyanit on the southern road, to beyond the confines of Ihumba and Ubanarama, this saline field extends, containing many large ponds of salt-bitter water, whose low banks are covered with an effervescence partaking of the nature of nitrate. Subsequently, two days afterwards, having ascended the elevated ridge which separates Ugogo from Uyanzi, I obtained a view of this immense saline plain, embracing over a hundred square miles. I may have been deceived, but I imagined I saw large expanses of grayish-blue water, 
which causes me to believe that this Salina is but a corner of a great salt lake. The Wahumba, who are numerous, from Nyambwa to the Uyanzi border, informed my soldiers that there was a Maji Kuba away to the north. Mazanza, our next camp after Nyuamba, is situated in a grove of palms, about thirteen miles from the latter place. Soon after arriving I had to bury myself under blankets, plagued with the same intermittent fever which first attacked me during the transit of Marenge Makali. Feeling certain that one day's halt, which would enable me to take regular doses of the invaluable sulphate of quinine, would cure me, I requested Sheikh Thani to tell Hamad to halt on the morrow, as I should be utterly unable to continue thus long, under repeated attacks of a virulent disease which was fast reducing me into a mere frame of skin and bone. Hamad, in a hurry to arrive at Unyanyembe, in order to dispose of his cloth before other caravans appeared in the market, replied at first that he would not, that he could not, stop for Masungu. Upon Thani's reporting his answer to me, I requested him to inform Hamad that, as the Masungu did not wish to detain him or any other caravan, it was his express wish that Hamad would march and leave him, as he was quite strong enough in guns to march through Ugogo alone. Whatever cause modified the sheikh's resolution and his anxiety to depart, Hamad's horn signal for the march was not heard that night, and on the morrow he had not gone. Early in the morning I commenced on my quinine doses. At six a.m. I took a second dose. Before noon I had taken four more. Altogether, fifty measured grains, the effect of which was manifest in the copious perspiration which drenched flannels, linen, and blankets. After noon I arose, devoutly thankful that the disease which had clung to me for the last fourteen days had at last succumbed to quinine. On this day the lofty tent— and the American flag which ever flew from the center pole, attracted the sultan of Mazanzi toward it, and was the cause of a visit with which he honored me. As he was notorious among the Arabs for having assisted Mwana Sarah in his war against Sheikh Snin bin Amir, high eulogies upon whom have been written by Burton, and subsequently by Speke, and as he was the second most powerful chief in Ugogo, of course he was quite a curiosity to me. As the tent-door was uplifted that he might enter, the ancient gentleman was so struck with astonishment at the lofty apex and internal arrangements, that the greasy barsati cloth which formed his sole and only protection against the chills of night and the heat of noon, in a fit of abstraction was permitted to fall down to his feet, exposing to the Masungu's unhallowed gaze the sad and aged wreck of what must have once been a towering form. His son, a youth of about fifteen, attentive to the infirmities of his father, hastened with filial duty to remind him of his condition, upon which, with an idiotic titter at the incident, he resumed his scanty apparel and sat down to wonder and gibber out his admiration at the tent and the strange things which formed the Masungu's personal baggage and furniture. After gazing in stupid wonder at the table, on which was placed some crockery and the few books I carried with me, at the slung hammock, which he believed was suspended by some magical contrivance, at the portmanteaus, which contained my stock of clothes, he ejaculated, Hila, the Masungu is a great sultan, who has come from his country to see Ugogo. He then noticed me, and was again wonderstruck at my pale complexion and straight hair, and the question now propounded was, How on earth was I white when the sun had burned his people's skins into blackness? Whereupon he was shown my cork toppy, which he tried on his woolly head, much to his own and to our amusement. 
The guns were next shown to him, the wonderful repeating rifle of the Winchester Company, which was fired thirteen times in rapid succession to demonstrate its remarkable murderous powers. If he was astonished before, he was a thousand times more so now, and expressed his belief that the Wagogo could not stand before the Masungu in battle, for wherever a Magogo was seen, such a gun would surely kill him. Then the other firearms were brought forth, each with its peculiar mechanism explained, until, in a burst of enthusiasm at my riches and power, he said he would send me a sheep or goat, and that he would be my brother. I thanked him for the honor, and promised to accept whatever he was pleased to send me. At the instigation of Sheikh Thani, who acted as interpreter, who said that Wagogo chiefs must not depart with empty hands, I cut off a shuka of Kaniki and presented it to him, which, after being examined and measures, was refused upon the ground that, the Masungu, being a great sultan, should not demean himself so much as to give him only a shuka. This, after the twelve doti received his mahungo from the caravans, I thought, was rather sore, but as he was about to present me with a sheep or goat, another shuka would not matter much. Shortly after he departed, and true to his promise, I received a large fine sheep, with a broad tail, heavy with fat, but with the words, that being now his brother, I must send him three doti of good cloth. As the price of a sheep is but a doti and a half, I refused the sheep and the fraternal honour, upon the ground that the gifts were all on one side, and that, as I had paid Mahongo, and given him a doti of Kanikia's present, I could not afford to part with any more cloth without an adequate return. During the afternoon one more of my donkeys died, and at night the hyenas came in great numbers to feast upon the carcass. Ulimengo, the chasseur, and best shot of my wangwana, stole out and succeeded in shooting two, which turned out to be some of the largest of their kind. One of them measured six feet from the tip of the nose to the extremity of the tail, and three feet around the girth. On the fourth June we struck camp, and after travelling westward for about three miles, passing several ponds of salt water, we headed north by west, skirting the range of low hills which separates Ugogo from Uyanzi. End of chapter 7, part 2